Hello, friend. Welcome back to Adrenaline Realm's Thriller Channel. I am your host, Neil Helligers, and we are in the triangle. Before we get to it, I just want to touch on a few of my favorite moments from the last episode. I love the introduction of Richard and Violet as some new posh antagonists. I love that McBride knows how to fish and knows how to clean fish. That was unexpected. I love this word from our sponsor. Hello. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Yes, yes, I gotcha. Uh, and the moment that I love most of all about this episode, and this goes to our, our overall mission, if you recall, about what makes a thriller, right, is, uh, is is not just the jet disintegrating, even though that's pretty spectacular. It's uh, it's what happens to that poor pilot, and they, they watch him, as as McBride puts it, aged to death. His his hair turns gray, his, his boots disintegrate, and his teeth fall out. How horrible is that? And then he's just a poor, aged skeleton. Horrible, yes. But just think for a moment about all the things that we've seen so far. We have time-traveling Cold War Russians, right? We have the Moon People, whoever they are, according to Olivia. And this is all currently wrapped in this a conspiracy theory type Bermuda Triangle story, right? And now we have this sort of body horror moment where the pilot disintegrates before their very eyes, right? So let's add this to our conception of what makes a thriller. We spoke before about how there's all these different kinds of thrillers, right? Paranormal thrillers, action thrillers. Um, I'm going to expand that to say a thriller can encompass all of those different elements in one story, and the combination of those things is what makes it so thrilling. Okay, so working theory, let's get back to it. Episode 6 of The Triangle. Here we go. For a moment... They all stood there and stared at the lump rolling in the surf beneath the parachute. Tessa Dumont blinked hard and looked again. The body was clear of the fierce current here, although the water splashed and sprayed over the wreckage of the aircraft. She squinted at the parachute and stepped forward, her usual caution about preserving the scene forgotten in the horror of what they had just witnessed. Sagara shouted at her to stop, and Hammond grabbed her shoulder, pulled her back. Aging is not a cause of death, snapped Dumont. I need to see. She tugged at the parachute to expose the broken skeleton. The skull's empty eye sockets lolling back and forth like a horror show peekaboo. McBride spoke in an awestruck voice. We've received a vision from the past. 
St. Clair rubbed her eyes, as if hoping for the vision to go away. Dumont did the same, but the rotting corpse and the submerged wreck of the jet were still there. It's a well-known phenomenon, said McBride. Traumatic events leave ripples, like emotional recordings. It's why people see ghosts at the site of the murder. The emotional impact is recorded. The stone tape theory, said Hammond, his voice unsteady. Recordings stored on the environment. McBride nodded. That's it? Specifically, that certain materials can store recordings, just like tape. But we can't prove it because we don't know how to play it back. He glanced at the others, but Dumont, at least, was too shell-shocked to argue with him this time. He seemed to take that as approval. The physical manifestation is just an echo of the strong emotions embedded on the location. But we all saw it. This vision from the past. Mass delusion, more like, said St. Clair. We've been out in the sun too long. Her voice helped to ground Dumont. She rubbed her arms, still prickling with horror. If this were an environmental recording, then we would have seen it before. Why now? It must be an important anniversary of the event. McBride squinted at the ruined aircraft, shimmering aquamarine in the shallow water. Look at the damage. It's been there for, what, 30 years, 40, maybe World War II? An F-35? Dumont's laugh came out as a bark. No, I don't think so. It can't be older than... Sagara interrupted, his voice low. Look at the wing, Dumont. What's different about it? She looked at the right wing, which had been shorn off on impact. It has hinges. Right. He pointed at the individual pieces. Double wheel on the landing gear. No onboard gun. No vertical lift fan hole behind the cockpit. He shook his head, sounding almost frightened. It's the F-35C. She shook her head even as she saw that he was right. What does that mean? asked Hammond. It means McBride's ghosts don't exist, said Dumont. Her stomach hurt. That's a brand new plane. Don't be silly, it's all rusted and ruined. Sagara backed her up. It's a U.S. Navy F-35C. They've only been operational for a few months. It must have been part of a larger search party looking for us. They went silent, as if hopeful that the roar of another jet might fill the air. But there was only the gentle sound of the waves tumbling onto the beach and the intermittent belligerent screech of a gull. It doesn't make sense, said Hammond. What the hell happened to it, to him? How can a brand new F-35 crash? I thought they practically flew themselves. Oh, my sweet summer child, laughed McBride. Shut up, McBride, snapped Sagara. What, we're gonna pretend military planes don't crash now? McBride raised an eyebrow and turned to Demont. Can't let anyone know the truth of what happened to our boys? Isn't that right, Demont? Demont hated being pushed to take sides, but she also knew that McBride had a point. She reluctantly nodded. Most F-16 crashes are CFITs, controlled flight into terrain. Difficult maneuvers at low altitude, G-forces, hypoxia. She looked at Sagara and then back to Hammond. 
But it's not in the public domain. The military do their own investigations. That's what I'm talking about, said McBride, his face triumphant. Sigara exhaled loudly. The U.S. military forces are pushing the envelope. That's not news. No, but you can't deny... This plane crashed, interrupted DeMont, her head throbbing. It's not up for argument. The question is why. DeMont didn't like the feeling that she couldn't trust her eyes. The pilot had done everything right, except... She stared at the pockmarked metal of the jet, the barnacles already taking hold. Except that she'd watched it crash into the water and then age, quickly at first, the windscreen cracking and rust appearing around the rivets, and then more slowly as a shiny military jet became a creaking old wreck, as if decades had passed in the blink of an eye. She clenched her teeth and willed her brain to stop replaying it. Like St. Clair said, maybe some sort of mass delusion. St. Clair spoke before McBride could get started again. He must have been flying low to look at the fog bank, she said. Like I keep saying, there's no mention of terrain on any maps of the area. And I bet he lost his electrics and the compass was spinning. DeMont agreed. His heads-up display flashing, alarms ringing. It would have been hugely disorienting. In a high-spec jet like that, the pressure builds up fast. He doesn't know what's wrong, and then he sees the island, and us, right in front of him. He's got a millisecond to make a decision. He turns away from the beach, knowing that it's going to stall the plane, and ejects. McBride finally got a word in again. You are ignoring the fact that the brand new jet looks 50 years old with a pilot who... His words trailed off, and he simply pointed at the skeleton. St. Clair retreated to the beach and then returned with two coconuts. She tossed the first into the fast-moving current by the wreckage. It fell in a slow arc. The impact with the water was not the sharp splash that they expected, but more of a splatter. The smell of decay wafted toward them. She threw the second low, skimming just over the water. As soon as the coconut drew close to the fast-moving water, the fruit visibly fell apart and disintegrated. She looked at the others, as if to confirm that they'd seen what she saw. Eats the water. The current running around the island. But that's impossible. No, said Dumont, pointing at the F-35. That is impossible. The pitted fuselage lay just under the surface, rust appearing around the rivets at the waterline. The skull lurched with the waves in the shallow water, eyeing her accusingly. There's obviously something in the water here, said Dumont. Maybe it's related to the golden algae or something. Metal-eating bacteria. And flesh-eating? I don't know. Dumont lost her temper. What I do know is that one, it isn't some vision from the past, and two, I can't get out there to investigate for myself. McBride's customary cool had slipped. How can you ignore the evidence right in front of you? Right in front of her is a U.S. Navy pilot who five minutes ago 
had his entire life and career in front of him. And now he's dead. Sagara's somber voice cooled her anger. Dumont stepped back, hands up in a half-apology. McBride did the same. Sagara stood as silent as a stone, staring at the boons. She could read it in his face. He'd lost another man. The weight of each death fell heavy on his shoulders. He must have felt her gaze because he looked up and their eyes met. She expected to see defeat, but instead there was defiance. Sigara hadn't given up yet. We need to find out what's in that goddamn city, he said. There's nothing we can do here. He strode off to the camp, every inch the leader. The rest of them followed without a word. Marie St. Clair didn't like any of this, no more really than Dumont did. But she saw no reason to go flying off the rails. First things first, food. She borrowed Hammond's lighter and lit the kindling, ready to grill their fruit. A temporary truce declared as their stomachs growled. Sigara started to speak. The point is, St. Clair put one finger to her lips. She moved to the back of the camp facing out to the sea, listening out for the rustling sound just at the edge of hearing. She lunged, reaching into the tall grass and coming out with the ear of young Cory between her thumb and forefinger. Spying again. Listening, Cory argued. That's how I find things out. <whistles> he whistled loudly. We brought you food. Fresh conch wrapped in a banana leaf. For your fire and then he pulled out a single polished shell and handed it to St. Clair. And I saved this pretty shell for you? Do I look like a tourist, that you need to give me such things? Still, a smile played around her lips. They look delicious, said McBride. St. Clair knew what he was thinking. The conch put his tiny fish to shame. She couldn't help being proud of the boys. How do you catch these? You just pick them up and crack them open, Corey said, making a motion of knocking two together. They are easy to get. It's not like they run away or anything. In the water? Hammond went pale. Don't go in the water. Another young man skidded down the side of the cliff face, taller and leaner, but clearly Corey's brother. He hesitated about ten yards away, looking from the adults to his brother and back again. St. Clair almost felt as if she knew him. You must be Malik. Join us. He barely favored her with a glance, but he sat down, close enough to hear the conversation, but far enough away to show that he wasn't part of their group. Corey bounced in place. Why not go into water? It's dangerous. Hammond shook his head, clearly still in shock from what they'd seen. You should stay away from it. St. Clair rolled her eyes, but Corey didn't look offended. Oh, now I know what you mean, he said. He glanced at Malik as if for approval. Malik's expression didn't change. Corey looked around the group, his voice low and hoarse. The hungry spirit. They leaned closer to hear him better, all except Dumont, whose lips had tightened to a firm line. It's an ancient legend of the island, said Corey. 
the evil spirit that stole the pirate's treasure. The spirit was cast into the sea, banished for a thousand lifetimes. His voice took on the cadence of a storyteller. It lives in the deep, but it cannot rest, for it thirsts for iron. The spirit thirsts and thirsts until it can stand no more, and then it rides the waves, desperately trying to quench its longings. Like an elder god, whispered Hammond, but the others shushed him. The boy continued. It pushes the waves harder and harder, rolling up on the island. The spirit nibbles at the fish and gnashes at the shipwrecks, but what it really wants is the iron from our blood. It knows we are on the island, so the waves come closer and closer, trying to drag us into the deep so that the starving spirit can eat its fill. Once seated, it retreats again into the deep, a quiet sleep, until the hunger wakes it again. This is fascinating, said McBride. From an anthropological viewpoint, Corey, who told you this? snapped St. Clair suspiciously. Malik burst out laughing in response. Aw, oh, man, said Corey, glaring at his brother. I just about had them going, too. You had to blow it. Malik's laughter transformed him from an angry young man into the fun-loving boy he must have once been. He's making it up. Not bad, though, I have to admit, brother. He grinned at his brother. It's the tides. When the water is high, it's dangerous. But it's safe enough to go fishing at low tide. But you've seen this, how the water corrodes. Hammond corrected himself, choosing simpler words. How the water eats away at metal and, um, other things. Malik's smile disappeared. His face closed down like a shudder. Yeah, I've seen it. I just told you, didn't I? St. Clair shot Hammond a look. We believe you, she said. We've just never seen anything like it before. Malik shrugged, stared out toward the beach as if he'd never spoken. St. Clair read his expression loud and clear. What they had and hadn't seen was not his problem. That son of a bitch! Cigar's low growl got everyone's attention, even Malik's. Dimitri knew. That's why he keeps his crew in the sub when the water rises. He knew and he didn't warn us, didn't say a word. Just left us to find out for ourselves. The looks on the brothers' faces confirmed it. Sagara was right. Everyone on the island knew. No one had told them. That clinches it. We need to go back into the city, said Sagara. There may be more tapes, more evidence. We need to find out why, and we need to find out how the submarine fits in. What are they doing there? Why won't they leave? Hammond looked unhappy. They still have Miller. We can't break the truce. What truce? Sagara's voice was thunder. What have they given us? What single concession? They let you go, grumbled Hammond. That seems like a big concession to me. St. Clair interjected before the argument could escalate. I agree with the Admiral. There's no point in just sitting here. Right now, they were ready to tear each other apart. A common enemy would help ease the tension. That's what I've been telling you, said McBride. This vicious current, it's forming a slipstream around the island. 
It must be connected to the submarine. Secret Soviet technology. This is fantastic. Dumont turned her back on the team and began fiddling with the radio again. Mayday, mayday, mayday. We're stranded on a small island. Coordinates to follow. Ten U.S. citizens in distress. Don't you count me in that, snapped St. Clair. And you might want to mention a few dozen Russians. Hammond knelt beside Dumont and shut off the radio. You can't bring more planes here. Not when we don't know. The look Dumont shot Hammond was pure ice. McBride may have infected all of you with his love of conspiracy theories and paranormal stories. But me? I want to actually get off this island. She turned the radio back on. Tessa, you saw what happened to the pilot. He lost situational awareness. I bet his electrics failed, like ours did here. There's something environmental here. Yes, but what? Hammond picked up the radio. That's what we're trying to find out. She snatched it away from him, the jury-rigged antenna swaying over them. No, you're trying to chase some weird government conspiracy theory like... McBride spoke up. Like Area 51 or the Manhattan Project? Are you telling me that government conspiracies don't exist? Because we both know better, Dumont. Enough. St. Clair was going to start shouting herself if they all kept this up. Everyone's nerves were frayed to the breaking point. Dumont, you agree that there's more to find out in the city, don't you? Yes, she said, her voice still angry. But only if you are looking for rational evidence, not stupid stories. She waved a hand toward Corey. Just like the boy told that story, but when it came down to it, there was a sensible explanation. McBride gave her a look. The water turned toxic at high tide is a sensible explanation? Compared to evil water spirits that don't exist? You don't know that though, do you? Interjected Corey. Maybe they do. St. Clair took a deep breath, trying to find a center of calm that she knew she had lost access to long ago. Keep it together. Keep them all together. The Admiral will lead a team into the city. See what we can find out. Dumont, you go with. Sagara shook his head. No. He looked over at her at St. Clair. No, I can't rely on her. She's too emotional. A strangled laugh came from Dumont. That's not something anyone has ever accused me of before. Still, she didn't argue as she placed the radio down again, dusting off the sand. Sagara didn't acknowledge her. Dumont command the radio in case someone calls in. Right. St. Clair, give me the gun. So you can lose another one? No way. St. Clair crossed her arms and stepped back, blocking the path to the cave. If he thought he was going to take it, he was going to have to go through her first. Hammond stood up. I'm with her. That's the only weapon we have left. And I'm requisitioning it. Sagara glared at St. Clair, who broadened her shoulders and gave him a defiant look back. Don't be silly, Admiral. McBride's voice was cheerful as always, as if none of the things they'd seen really affected him. If you get caught breaking the truce, it's better if the gun is here. If the soldiers attack you, one damn gun isn't going to save you, and you know it. Better that we have access to it here for defense. 
sailors, not soldiers. Sagara didn't look happy. Fine, we leave it here. St. Clair, you'll come with me. St. Clair chewed her lip, nervous about leaving the rest of them to their own devices. She glanced at the brothers. Corey watched her every move, and Malik pretended not to care, but he was clearly listening. Can I leave you two to guard the fire and grill the conch? Hammond jumped in. I'll... St. Clair cut him off. You'll look after the radio. She nodded in Dumont's direction, and then again when he didn't react. Hammond opened his mouth to argue, and then, thankfully, closed it. Right. And me? McBride made as if to head toward the city. No. Sugara gave him a look. We need to be able to move fast. Fine. McBride's voice was just a little bit sulky. I'll go up on the ridge. I want to catalog the wrecks, now that we know they haven't been here as long as they look like they have. I don't know if we should split up, said Hammond. Maybe the rest of us should stay in the camp. Poppycock, said McBride. As long as the truce holds, there's no problem. And if it doesn't, well, we'll have bigger problems than me sliding down the cliff to get to you. Besides, you aren't going to get caught this time, Admiral, are you? Sagara gave him a scathing look. No, I am not. Come on, St. Clair, let's go. He strode off without a word. St. Clair looked at the group again. She wasn't sure if the brothers knew she wanted them as a calming force on Dumont and Hammond, a distraction. But it didn't matter, as long as they stayed. She followed Sagara and hoped she was making the right decision. Hello, friend. This is Neil Helligers, host of Adrenaline Realms Thriller Channel, and I'm here to talk to you a little bit more about the Greenlight app. And this message is, of course, sponsored by Greenlight, but I was using, our family was using the Greenlight app uh, even before the first ad in a wonderful, thrilling, cosmic coincidence, right? See what I did there? So again, to catch you up, Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. Basically, the way it works is that parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their kids' spending and saving. And you can see exactly how much money they have in their account. And there's different ways to give them money. What we've been doing is on a, like a weekly allowance, a certain amount that goes into his account every week. So in order to further the conversation about money and about earning, uh, we're using Greenlight as a kind of a foundation for that conversation. Uh, in other words, instead of just the allowance he gets for certain base things that he's expected to do around the house, uh, we are also adding the chore feature, which is certain one-time payments for certain one-time jobs. For example, in our house, we're trying to encourage our son to start walking the dog more. He's old enough for it, he's responsible enough for it, and he's done it enough that he knows what to do. So he can really see that for all those extra times that he steps up and does the dog walk, he gets rewarded for that job well done. And this is the conversation. In life, when you work a little extra harder, you get a little extra compensation and you can either save that up or spend it how you like. And we're not alone in this. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's a very easy and very convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate life together. So sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash adrenaline. That's greenlight.com slash adrenaline to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash adrenaline slash 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 slash. So thrilling, right?
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Michael Hammond burrowed his toes into the sand, his mind still reeling from the jet crash. The sound of the waves grew remote as the tide receded, and a quiet hush fell over the camp, interrupted only by the crackling of the fire. Corey was pounding the pink conch meat flat with a stone before threading it onto twigs. Malik held the conch skewers over the flames as his brother handed them to him. Hammond reached out, paused, and then touched Dumont's hand. Tessa? And then when she didn't respond, Are you all right? She looked at him, belligerent. Why wouldn't I be? We're just stranded on an undocumented island with no means of contacting the rest of the world and no route to escape, with a bunch of crazy military types who are getting more and more outlandish every passing day. She looked at him and... Do you think mass delusion is a possibility? He half laughed. I guess so, but I don't think it's likely. Well, something is wrong, she scowled. I keep going over the facts and trying to fit them together. It's like some huge mental Tetris game where I have to twist and turn every piece of information until it fits. But each time I try, it leaves another hole. I just can't make sense of it. He squeezed her hand. There are things we don't know that we can't understand. Sure, it is easier to believe that. Supernatural stories to help us sleep better at night. But I just keep thinking that if I concentrated, I could make sense of it all. Corey interrupted by holding a skewer between them, the conch meat seared by the flames. Want one? Sure. Hammond took it and tried to take a bite. He managed to rip a chunk off and chewed it slowly. The flavor was good, like clams and salt. But the texture was that of old rubber tires. Delicious, he said chewing tenaciously. He passed the skewer to DeMont. Here, you try. Mom always sliced him thin, but we don't have a knife, said Corey. I think these taste like hers, though. What do you think, Malik? Malik took a skewer and gnawed at the top until a piece came off. It's like chewing on rubber bands, he said. When he saw Corey's crestfallen face, he wiped the scowl off his own. It's pretty good, brother. Best we had in a long time. The only grilled conch we've had, he laughed. We don't have a fire, he told Hammond. We always have food you can eat raw, except when those old white people give us their leftovers. We get by, said Malik with a frown. Sure we do, Corey grinned, licking his fingers. 
But it's nice to have a fire. You are welcome to share ours whenever you want, said Hammond. He was still chewing on the same piece of conch. Especially if you do the cooking. Sure. My dad taught me to cook. We used to have these on the beach when he came in early from the fishing. Dumont still held the skewer. Where are your parents? Hammond winced at the direct question, but Corey didn't seem to mind. Don't know. They must be looking for us, though. They'll get here soon. They sure will, brother. But Malik didn't sound very confident, and Hammond noticed that he didn't make eye contact with anyone as he said it. Hammond wanted to leave the subject alone. The boys must be pretty traumatized. But Dumont was in an investigative mood. What happened? Corey was quick to answer. We went fishing. Normally we just pick up the spiny lobsters from the traps, but Dad wanted to go out further, go deep sea fishing for tuna. You can always sell tuna. He said because of the storms, the big boats hadn't gone out, so the tourists were paying stupid money for it. He glanced at Dumont. No offense. She shrugged. I like tuna too. What happened then? You went out, right, despite the weather forecast? Hammond could see her putting together the chain of events that had led to the boys being stranded. Hey, he said. I, I know this is tough. If you want to change the subject or something, you know, just say the word. You don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. Malik gave him a disdainful look. The weather wasn't that bad, he said to his brother. Right, not at first, but then it got worse, way worse. Waves were breaking over the side of the boat, wetter than the rain, and the rain was pretty wet. He seemed to feel that Dumont wasn't sufficiently impressed. The boat fell down and then climbed up swells that were as high as coconut trees, and the wind was blowing like a hurricane. Mum made us put on our life jackets. That sounds sensible, said Dumont. One for everyone? No, just me and Malik. Why not your parents? Jeez. Hammond tried to kick her foot, but she just gave him a perplexed look. Malik jumped in. We only had two, so she gave them to us. Yeah, and I was feeling sick and scared. The waves were breaking over the boat, and then... He paused, trying to remember the sequence of events. And then the engine cut out said Malik. His words were matter-of-fact, almost cold. Hammond got the feeling he replayed this scene over and over in his head. Right! Corey swiped at his face with a closed fist, but continued. The engine died. We were as helpless as an upside-down turtle. He shook his head. It was already bad, very bad, but then a wave hit me. He looked at Malik. I don't really remember what happened. I do. Malik's voice was flat. The waves swept you off the boat. I went to grab you and it got me too. We fell fast, deep into the sea. I held on to you and swam back up, but the swells were high and with the rain coming down, I couldn't get my bearings. I didn't know which way the boat was. He swallowed hard and continued in that same toneless voice. I swam and swam, but I couldn't find a boat. Corey reached over and touched his hand. 
You held on to me, though. I held on to you. He held up his hand for the others to see. His forefinger was twisted, broken and badly healed at an angle. Pink welts covered his fingers and palm. Corey nodded. He held on to me until we washed up on the beach. Even after, he held on to me so close, he couldn't open his hand back up. Hammond's throat tightened as the two boys looked at each other. Even Dumont was silent. He swallowed the lump of conch whole. You know, I'd do it again, too, said Malik. I'll never let go of you, brother. I know. He grinned at Malik. Not until Mum and Dad come and take us home, right? Right. Malik smiled back at Corey, but his eyes sparkled with unshed tears. As they followed the curve of the lagoon, St. Clair was already regretting her insistence on leaving the gun in the camp. But the lagoon had just emptied and the city was already crawling with Russians. She and Sagara crept past the city and then doubled back in order to avoid a patrol, entering the complex at the back of the long armory building. There are guards everywhere, hissed St. Clair. Sagara pointed. There, past the barracks. I think that's the control deck. I want to get another look in there. On my command, move in. The control deck was right next to the submarine. He led her forward at a run, ducking behind a large container. A guard passed between the buildings within a few feet of their hiding place. Her heart pounded so loud she thought the man might hear it. But he passed on by, stepping with military precision to the end of the lane and then turning around. McBride was right, how she hated those words, that a single gun wouldn't protect them from a whole platoon, or whatever a submarine's worth of sailors was called, but it might help them get past a single nosy guard. When the man passed them again, Sigara touched her shoulder and mouthed the word, South, before leaping out behind the man and running again. As they crept around the corner of the barracks, Sigara paused, scoping the area. He pointed to the building with the faded lightning bolt on the side. That's housing the power cells for the city, and the sub is powering it. He glared. They're nuclear, which means they have enough power to light up this facility a million times. It's complete overkill. St. Clair tried not to think about a nuclear submarine in the midst of her beloved islands. But then why? He shook his head. I don't know. He pointed at a young man standing by the doorway, holding an automatic rifle, some sort of old-fashioned AK-47. But they sure as hell don't want us finding out, truce or no truce. They knew you'd break the truce, she said. It was just a matter of time. If Dimitri had been straight with me, I would have been straight with him. His voice was rough. Look, see that corrugated pipe at the back? She did a man-sized plastic tube leading from the power hub past the weather station and out of the complex. That must be protecting the electric wiring going out of the facility. There's something on the other side of the lagoon. She pointed. We can circle back that way and then come down over there, avoid the guards. Sagara agreed. 
They dashed past the board guard and up the slope. Parts of the tubing had disintegrated on the far side, showing glimpses of the thick black cables in its interior as they hiked up the hill. As they ascended the rim, they looked out onto a narrow beach. The tube of cables led past the coral reefs and into the sea, to an enormous steel ring turning slowly. In the center of the ring were thick metal blades, each easily the length of a full-grown man, fanned out like spokes in the wheel. The sun reflected off the blades as the ring rotated with a gentle whirring sound. She glanced at Sagara, who looked as dumbfounded as she felt. Sagara motioned forward and they crept toward the structure towering over the mild waves of low tide. There was no sign of a patrol. The edges of the blades were smeared green where algae had taken hold, and some rust showed where the rivets connected overlapping aluminum sheets. But otherwise, the structure showed no real sign of wear or fatigue. The blades flexed lightly as they came out of the water. A strand of seaweed was flung up and then caught again with every rotation. This must be from the original installation, said Sagara. It must be 70 years old. Look there. He pointed at the tubing as it snaked from the beach to the water. See the red and black cable shielding? That's the same cabling they used to connect the sub to the power cells. He stopped, his hands balled into fists. St. Clair shrugged. Yeah, and? And that means that it's not original. Those Russians patched it up. They know about this. They are taking care of it. This is why they are powering the city grid. St. Clair shook her head. But why would you power a water wheel? Surely it was meant to power the city, not the other way around. At high tide, it'll be almost completely submerged. This must be what is causing that current. The fan is forming the slipstream around the island that took out the F-35 said Sagara in a voice rough with disbelief. And those stupid sailors are powering it. Damn it, Dimitri. Why would he do that? Because they don't know what it does. St. Clair was mesmerized by the blades dipping into the water and out again. The air around the fan looked unsettled, like it was somehow thicker or more turbulent. So they are trying to find out. At high tide, Dimitri locks his boys away while the hydrofan drives a current that circles the island. Sagara looks suddenly old and tired, as if every one of his fifty years had landed on him at once. It's all connected somehow. The facilities in the Lagoon City, the electronic interference, the magnetism, the slipstream. I don't know. The science is beyond me. It was beyond them, too, said St. Clair, bile in her throat. They just abandoned their work and ran like dogs, tails between their legs, leaving us to clean up the mess. She meant us, as in the islanders, but Sagara misunderstood. Well, that's just what we are going to do. St. Clair opened her mouth ready to point out how his military had caused all this in the first place and who the hell did he think he was. And then she closed it again. He was right. 
They had to stop this right here and now. She needed his help. We need to force Dimitri to stop powering the grid. No. Hammond needs to get access to the audio that we recovered from the city. We need to discover more about how it works. I don't care how it works, Admiral, snapped St. Clair. I want it off. I do too, but we might be able to have both. He started walking, simply assuming that she would follow. St. Clair paused, anger rising like fire in her belly. But it wasn't Sagara's fault. He was just a stand-in for the Americans and the military and the unbelievable conceit of white men in the Caribbean. The truth was, he was her best chance for stopping this. She swallowed her bitterness and followed him back to the camp in silence. Hammond watched the streaks of peach and purple across the sky as the sun set. Next to him, Dumont fidgeted, detaching and reattaching all the wires of the radio. Clearly less a question of fixing it and more something to do with her hands. Corey stabbed his skewer into the coals, showering the fire pit with orange sparks. Malik was stretched out next to him, his eyes closed, although Hammond doubted that he was sleeping. They were all talked out now lost in their own thoughts. It was almost peaceful. Hammond was still staring at Malik's ruined hand when Sagara and St. Clair stormed into the camp, shouting over each other in an attempt to explain everything they'd seen and understood during their excursion. St. Clair was adamant that they needed to act right away. All of this, it's all part of the same awful project. We need to stop the submarine from powering the grid. She cursed under her breath as McBride slid down the hill, interrupting her. About time he got back. You know that old coot? He's rigged all sorts of booby traps around his hut. He's strung up a rock from the palm tree by his house. You get too close and wham, a face full of stone. And get this, he's driving sharpened sticks into the tall grass and running wire between them. Come on, said Malik. He hit Corey on the shoulder and moved out of the camp. Corey handed a skewer of conch to St. Clair and then ran to catch up with his brother. Low-wire entanglement, said Sagara. Once the wires are set up, it's effectively invisible. Doesn't do any real harm, but sure slows down anyone trying to get through. This guy is some kind of nutcase. Or a survivalist, said St. Clair. He doesn't know when you're going to be back. Dimitri has invested everything in securing this island, said Dumont as if McBride's interruption had never happened. He's not going to just let you unplug his submarine. Hammond agreed, but before he could say so, Sagara snapped at her in frustration. Do you have any better ideas? Yes. Her voice was icy. Exactly the same one since the start. We have to get off this island. That should be our only priority. And how exactly are we going to do that? Hammond tried to interject to lessen the tension. Tessa, everyone is trying their best. She glanced at him, took a deep breath, and then looked around the group. Listen to me. Your description is very clear. The water is dangerous at high tide when the hydrofan is submerged, but there's no danger when the tide is low. 
That's not enough time to get past the slipstream. It's suicide. In a raft, sure. Not in a motorized vessel. Sagara laughed. You figure we can't force Dimitri to turn the power off, but we can hijack his submarine? What are we going to do? Throw rocks at it until they all come out? St. Clair worked it out first. Not the submarine. The yacht. Sagara raised an eyebrow but said nothing. It's broken, said Hammond. Otherwise, they'd have left already. Dumont focused on St. Clair. It looked in good shape to me. St. Clair agreed. The boys are clearly repairing it for them. It may not be perfect, but I think it's seaworthy. We could finish off whatever needs doing, said Dumont, if we took it off them. They are unarmed, and we've still got a gun. St. Clair looked thoughtful. It isn't big enough to take all of us. No, but if three or maybe four of us took the yacht at the next low tide, we could get help. Real help. Hammond couldn't believe what they were saying. Took the yacht? As in by force? He looked at Sagara, but the man still didn't react. He couldn't possibly be considering this, could he? Right, Dumont continued as if it were obvious. There's no other way off this island. I've thought through every sequence. We tried working with them, but they wouldn't listen. As if that justifies... St. Clair took her side. We need to expose and stop whatever is happening on this island. Dumont is right. We need the yacht. Hammond couldn't believe his ears. They'd all gone crazy. He felt some sympathy for Dumont's frustration at McBride earlier, even if this time it was her stupid idea that the others had latched onto. They couldn't just take someone's boat. What, we're hijackers now? Psst. St. Clair raised her hands, shushing everyone. She stepped toward the tall grass, staring intently. Kuri. Silence. Kuri, is that you? She peered into the underbrush and then shook her head. Sorry. I thought I heard rustling. I'm getting paranoid. No wonder, Hammond crossed his arms, with all this crazy talk. It's a question of survival, said Dumont. I don't like it, said Hammond. We don't actually need you, said St. Clair. Sagara stepped in before things got worse. I think it is a last resort, he said. Dumont crossed her arms. There are no other viable options. None that you care to consider anyway, interjected McBride. Hammond shook his head. Listen, if we have to, fine. But let's at least try talking to Dimitri. Once we've told him about the project and that we all agree that the hydrofan needs to be stopped, maybe he'll listen to reason. I'd like to be there for that conversation, said McBride. Hammond reached out for Demont's hand again to force her to look at him. We have to at least try, said Hammond. Demont sighed. She fiddled with the radio again, even though it was clear that it couldn't get a message out. I'm just saying, I've been through all the scenarios. Our best chances are if we take the yacht and get help as quickly as possible. Understood, said Sagara. He looked at the sky. The Caribbean night fell swiftly. 
will approach Dimitri tomorrow, and then revisit it. Hammond felt suffocated by the silence that overtook the group. Those poor boys, he said, as he threw another piece of wood on the fire. He gave the team an abbreviated version of the story of the tragic fishing trip. Corey clearly still hopes his parents will come for them, even though they've been here for almost a year already. Huh. St. Clair furrowed her brow. I can't think of any fishing boats gone missing during Taurus season, let alone losing the entire family. She shook her head. Sure, there's plenty of reason to risk deep-sea fishing, but I don't know anything about the ships being trapped in harbor and a shortage of seafood like he told you about. About ten years ago, it got bad, when the island suffered through multiple tropical storms, but not recently. Not recently, repeated Demont. She jumped to her feet. That's it! I knew something was wrong with her story. They all stared at her. Hammond was certain he must have misunderstood. What? The little girl. There's no way she was on that plane. Olivia? Of course she was. What are you talking about? Dumont had finally lost it. She must be lying. Hammond stood to face her, his voice a shocked shout. What's wrong with you? After all that little girl has been through? Dumont stared at him, open-mouthed. When she finally spoke, her voice was hollow and strained. I'm telling you, she's lying. But now not even you will listen to me. She pushed him out of her way and left the camp, heading to the trail that led to the cave. As she disappeared up the slope, he saw her swipe at her face, maybe brushing away tears. Well, now you've done it, said McBride. Hammond rubbed his temples. Shit. He frowned at St. Clair and Sagara, who had remained silent. You know she's wrong. We heard Olivia's voice on the ATC tapes. It's her, and she's got Mr. Babbitt. She couldn't make up that kind of detail. Of course, agreed Sagara. There's no way. Dumont is just a bit hair-trigger at the moment. St. Clair cut up some of the leftover conch, warming it over the dying embers. She can't make sense of it, and it's driving her crazy. Hammond? McBride cleared his throat and waggled his eyebrows. When Hammond didn't react, had in fact no idea what McBride was trying to hint at, McBride just sighed. She's gone to the cave. Go after her. And say what? McBride shook his head sorrowfully. How about don't say anything? Stop trying to prove she's wrong. Hammond threw up his hands in confusion. But she is. Hammond sighed in deep disappointment, and St. Clair laughed out loud. Sigara looked away with a muffled sound, but Hammond was pretty sure he'd seen his lips twitch in amusement. What? McBride spoke slowly, as if to someone slow to comprehend. She respects your opinion, but right now she just needs your support. Go up there and try not talking. He waggled his eyebrows again. You're crazy, said Hammond, but he saw the Admiral nodding in agreement. 
Sigara never agreed with McBride. Hammond swallowed his words and thought about the way Dumont had swiped at her face as she left. He felt that lump in his throat again, remembering her face when he shouted her down. I'll just go check she's okay. He glared at McBride before the man could say something else embarrassing. I'll bring her back. He headed up the trail. Don't rush, called McBride. And this time, Hammond definitely heard Sigara chuckle. He found Dumont sitting in the cave, looking out over the water. Hey, he said. He brushed her hair out of her face. She didn't move away. Hammond? That Cessna crashed five years ago. He put an arm around her, drawing her into a hug. Shh, don't you shush me. But she remained in his embrace. Her voice was muffled against his chest. Michael, it isn't possible. I heard you. He resisted his natural urge to talk it out. Dumont was right. None of it made sense. But McBride was also right. There was no point in dwelling on it, not right now. Hammond held her tightly, pulling the rubber band out of her hair so he could stroke it. It doesn't make sense. It's okay to be upset. It's okay. Telling himself as much as he was telling her. Somehow, it turned out to be the right thing. She nodded, snuffling, and pulled back a bit to look at him. I'm sorry. I just... I hate that I can't make sense of it. I know. He touched her cheek, waiting for some sort of sign. Then he came to the conclusion that he had one. She was still here. He wrapped his arms around her. We'll get through this, he promised. The sounds of the others drifted up as they made camp for the night. He brushed his lips against her cheek and felt her shiver against him. What would her lips feel like against his? He wanted to say something clever, but the ability to form words escaped him. The moon rose over the trees, bathing them in a silvery light. He closed his eyes and drew his face closer to hers, then opened his eyes again to find hers were still wide open. Feeling a bravado he had not felt since he was a much younger man, he leaned in and kissed her. Her lips were soft and opened gently under his. She tasted of fruit and salt. Reluctantly, he pulled away and looked at her. She held his gaze. Tessa, he whispered, as if they might be overheard. Yes, Michael. His name sounded good on her lips. He smiled at her, stealing another quick kiss. Could you close your eyes? It's freaking me out. They both laughed, a loud and sudden sound in the island night. But then she tilted her head back toward him, and slowly, deliberately, 
closed her eyes. He kissed her again, harder and slower. Her arms came up around his shoulders and neck and she clung to him, allowing the kiss to wipe away the world around them. Dumont's first moments of consciousness were of cold, damp rock and the warmth of Hammond's hand holding onto hers. Once again, it took her brain a moment to catch up to reality. But although her circumstances hadn't improved, she was still stranded on an undocumented island and she still couldn't make sense of anything. A smile played around her face as she stretched her body against Hammond's. He turned toward her reaching out to pull her even closer, as if they weren't already pressed together. Then, with a reluctant sigh, he let go, glancing toward the bright blue sky at the cave entrance. We better get back to camp or we'll miss breakfast, he said. Dumont kissed him on the cheek, laughing, and then rolled over to find her clothes. They talked until the early hours, sharing their pasts and their presents hopes and their dreams. He whispered in the dark about the death of his fiancée, and she held him close until he was sleeping. It was only a brief reprieve from their situation, she knew that, but somehow it felt like the start of something bigger. They got dressed in companionable silence surprisingly comfortable with each other despite the unexpected passion that had so suddenly and possibly inappropriately consumed both of them the night before. Dumont wasn't one to dwell on such things. She didn't see the point in being embarrassed the morning after. She turned to see him and still getting dressed. She crawled to the cave entrance. He could follow her when he was ready. Hey, said Hammond, aren't you going to wait for me? Do you need help? He laughed, blinked. Um, no, I just thought. She waited a moment, but when he didn't elaborate, she shrugged. I'll see you at the camp, she said. She did not regret the distraction, but now she wanted a moment to try to think through her realization from last night. The accident report said that the Cessna crash had happened five years ago and that the last contact was from a little girl on board who was five years old, the daughter of the passenger in the front right seat. Olivia appeared to be that little girl and had referenced Mr. Babbitt. However, she was only about five years old herself, and certainly not ten. There were only two possibilities. One, Olivia was the girl who spoke to ATC on that plane, or two... She was masquerading as the girl in the plane, in which case she must have heard the ATC recordings in order to know about Mr. Babbitt and the other details. In the quiet light of the morning, Dumont had to admit to herself that it seemed unlikely that she could have found that out. But if Olivia was the little girl on that plane, then, one, she was lying about how long she'd been here and looked half her actual age, or two, the accident report was wrong and the date was transposed or something like that, or three, space and time had become completely corrupted on this island and no longer had any meaning. 
she shook away the uneasy feeling that option three was correct. That was madness. Hammond, Michael, she mentally corrected herself. Perhaps even Mike? She'd crossed that bridge when she came to it. Michael was adamant that the girl was not lying, and Dumont had to agree. The evidence backed that belief. So the NTSB report was wrong. It was probably a recent incident, and someone had filed it under the wrong year. It was perfectly plausible. A lot more plausible than that they were on an island with a secret government project that corrupted space and time anyway. With a sigh of relief, she entered the camp. Sigara arrived back at the camp to see Dumont coming down the slope. He dropped the makeshift bag in the shade and began pulling out the bottles they had filled with water. St. Clair was lighting the fire again, mumbling something about dreams of coffee. McBride was scribbling notes in that battered notebook of his. Sigara wasn't sure who he wanted to take for the confrontation with Dimitri. Not Dumont. Not Hammond. He would muddle things, worry about morality. But St. Clair was too angry and McBride couldn't be relied on to speak sense. He was still considering his options when Dumont arrived. Hey, she said. Michael will be down in a minute. McBride grinned broadly. So, now it's Michael? Am I supposed to be embarrassed? She tried to look matter-of-fact, but her cheeks flushed pink. Sigara felt sorry for her. Leave her be, he grunted. I think it's fabulous, said McBride. A bit of romance on the island. I thoroughly approve. He waved his notebook at her. The readers will love it. I don't suppose you want to kiss and tell? St. Clair broke in. Do you want some grilled fruit? Dumont smiled at her in relief. Please, she said, just as Hammond arrived with Olivia. I found another guest for breakfast, he called. Do we have enough? Of course, said McBride. Come here and help me wash the fruit. He handed the plums to Olivia, clearly pleased to be rid of the chore, but not as pleased as Olivia was to be given it. Dumont looked sharply at the girl, but held her tongue. Sigara sat down by the palm and leaned back. It was as if they had an unspoken agreement to enjoy this moment without argument, pretend that it was just a normal morning. Sigara was sure he was not the only one struggling to keep up as the nightmare of the island unfolded. But they could have this, a simple breakfast in peace, before they faced the challenge. Malik barged into the group, stumbling in his haste and knocking over the bottles of water that Sigara had collected. Hey there, said Sigara. But Malik simply picked himself up and confronted St. Clair. Where is he? St. Clair held her hands up and shook her head. You mean Cory? I haven't seen him since last night. Liar! Hammond flinched and Dumont moved to stand next to him. Sigara stood, ready to deal with the young man if he got violent. But there was no need. St. Clair broadened her shoulders and stepped closer to him, making it clear she wasn't intimidated. This obviously wasn't the first irate man she'd stared down. Malik, I do not know where Cory is, but I will help you look for him if you stop shouting at me. 
the last words were said with a cold authority. Malik stared at her for a moment and then stepped back, eyes still distrustful. He was gone when I woke up, said Malik. And I know he came back here after we left. He wasn't here, repeated St. Clair. But she shot a worried look at Sagara. That rustling sound she'd heard, the boy had been spying on them again. Malik looked less sure of himself. He was gone until long after moonrise. He wouldn't tell me why he'd left or where he'd been. I stayed up to kept watch. I was worried. But then I fell asleep. I should never have fallen asleep. You aren't superhuman, son, said Sagara. Don't you blame yourself for that. Discovering your limits is a thing every man must learn for himself. Malik gave him a contemptuous look, and Sagara bit his tongue. I woke up only an hour or two later. The sun was just rising. Cory was gone. I went down to the beach where he likes to hunt for conch, but the tide is still too high, and he wasn't there. Malik's voice choked up. There was a message in the sand. It just said, I'll be back. Like he's the stupid Terminator or something. I'll be back. He looked at the others. Where's he gone? If he's done something stupid, he's probably just gone to look for breakfast or something, said Dumont. He wouldn't leave me a message. He gave St. Clair a searching look. He really didn't tell you. He really didn't. Hammond turned to Olivia. How long until low tide? When the girl didn't answer, he tried again. How long until the moon people come out? Olivia brightened and looked toward the water. Soon. Do you want to go hide? You really think she can tell, said Dumont. But Cigar looked out too and saw that the slipstream was already less turbulent. It was easy to see, now that he knew what to watch for. The girl was right. Malik didn't care. I need to go find him. Olivia piped up again, happy to be helpful. Maybe he's with Richard and Violet. As if she had summoned it, Sigara saw the stern of the yacht entering the bay. Following the coastline. There they are. Dumont stepped forward. No! Are they leaving with our yacht? Corey must have told them. Technically, it's not our yacht, offered McBride. But sure enough, there's Corey. Corey was on the bow of the ship, pulling at the halyard to raise the sail. Richard stood at the helm. Violet sat next to him, smearing suntan lotion on herself. Right on low tide, said Sagara. The hydrofan is out of the water. Then he stumbled forward as Malik shoved him out of the way, dashing full speed to the beach. Cory! he shouted, spraying sand behind him as he ran, reaching the water before Sagara had even managed to steady himself. Malik ran into the surf, diving under the waves. As he broke through the water, he shouted Cory's name again. Cory waved and shouted something, his words lost to the wind and waves. Violet shook her head and glanced at the shore. When she saw Malik, she turned again, positioning herself so her back was toward him, as if whatever was happening on the beach had nothing to do with her. Richard also acted oblivious calling something to Corey, who stopped waving and went back to hoisting the sail. 
The boat was making good time with the small engine, and would move even faster once the sail was up. There was no chance that Malik could swim out to them in time. Malik must have realized the same thing. He let the next wave drag him back to the beach. As soon as he was clear of the water, he ran along the shoreline to catch up to the boat, which was pulling ahead. Cory, he shouted. Just jump! Don't let them take you! He galloped forward, too winded to keep shouting. Sigara ran after Malik, but within seconds, St. Clair had sprinted past him. Dumont and Hammond followed, with Olivia and McBride trailing behind. Malik skidded to a stop as he reached the end of the beach, where the sand gave way to the coral reef and the lagoon. He screamed, demanding that the boat stop, his words slowly degenerating into a string of threats and obscenities. Corey looked shocked at his brother's reaction. The sail billowed as the boat yawed slightly left, heading inland. For a split second, Sigara had hoped that they had changed their mind. But Richard had just reached over to refill Violet's wine glass. As he returned his attention to the helm, the boat turned out to sea. Malik howled his brother's name again, but the wind carried his voice away. His cries drowned out by the shrieking gulls as the sail went taut and the boat picked up speed. Sagara found it hard to look at the utter desperation in Malik's eyes when he knew he couldn't follow. Sagara turned away. The waves of the lagoon crashed as the water drained at high speed, the ductwork coming into play. The roofs of the tallest buildings had just begun to become visible. Something broke through the waves at the center of the lagoon, the deepest area. The periscope of the still-submerged K-221. A chill settled in his gut. Something rippled beneath the water near the sub. No, he half-whispered. The ripples headed straight toward the yacht, moving fast. He grabbed Olivia, who was still watching the yacht, pulling her toward him as he covered her eyes. He wished he could do the same for Malik, but there was no time. And the boy would have never allowed it. The occupants all had their backs to the coast now. They never saw the torpedo coming. Half a heartbeat later, Sigara was blinded by the bright light of impact. A fireball exploded on the sea. As the flames dimmed, pieces of hull and wood and mast crashed into the water. A shredded piece of sail floating down after them. There could be no survivors. Olivia wrestled out of his grasp as the heat of the fireball hit them, a wave of unexpected warmth. Sigara let her go. He could not protect her from this. Could not protect any of them from this. The group stared out at the flickering flames on the water, burning detritus. All that remained of the yacht and its three occupants. Corey, whispered Malik, sinking to his knees, all of his anger and bravado gone. Malik, said Hammond, his voice catching. He knelt behind the boy and put his arms around him in a strong hug. Malik struggled at first and then broke down, desperate sobs bursting out of him. Hammond's voice was hoarse. Can't we shut up? Snapped Sigara, 
his eyes back on the periscope. A signal light flashed, fast then slow. It's Morse code. Alpha Victor Echo Sierra, said Dumont. Aves, I missed the start. Me too. The next three letters were Romeo Papa Tango, RPT. He glanced at Dumont and she nodded in understanding. It's repeating. Sigara shushed everyone again as they concentrated to follow the message. He hadn't used Morse code in years, and he suspected Dumont had probably only ever learned it out of interest, not for real-life decoding. Noon, she said. None. No, wait. Not none. No one. Lima Echo Alpha Victor leaves, said Sigara. And then they both repeated the message in unison. No one leaves. The lights flashed, repeating the codes again. There was no misunderstanding the submarine's message. Even if they could find a way off this island, Dmitri Kolesnikov had no intention of letting them go. Okay, so yes, there continues to be a lot going on here. We have Sagara starting to put the pieces together between Lagoon City and the machinery and everything that's going on. We have them piecing together that Olivia's plane crash was five years ago as well. That's crazy. And uh, yes, unfortunately, we uh, seem to have lost our new posh antagonists taken out by the other Russian antagonists. So uh, that's very tidy. Thank you, Dimitri. Uh, and I love this element of uh, we have this budding romance, right? Now we're adding yet another element to the thriller. Uh, uh, and I love that it's McBride who comes in, McBride the writer who comes in and says, oh, the readers will love the romance in the story. You know, I, I love that the, the writers of the triangle included that sort of meta moment for us all to enjoy. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention before I let you go until next time, I recorded the triangle actually a little while ago. So this is me uh, revisiting this story along with you, which is, uh, I'm so happy to be able to share this with you while also putting the pieces together as Sagara and the team put their pieces together about what makes a great thriller as we kick off Realm's channel of their best curated thrillers. So I will see you next time for episode seven. Until then, don't get torpedoed, don't get disintegrated. Take care. You're listening to Adrenaline, The Triangle. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. The Triangle is created by Dan Cobalt and written by Dan Cobalt, Sylvia Spruck Wrigley, and Mindy McGinnis. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Neil Helligers. 
Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Adrenaline is produced by Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Ladshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Neil Helligers. Audio editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Marcus Bagala. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Adrenaline by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.